On Rebuilders today, we are taking a look around the world. It's been a while since we've caught up, so we're going to be chatting about what's been happening and also having a look at one element of the grey zone where two contradictory things are happening at the same time. What are you most excited about talking about, Mark? Well, first of all, I'm excited to be back. Yes. And talk about these things. Lots of things observing around the world. I've been overseas for the first time in two and a half years. So just great to take that big picture view, what's happening in the world, catch people up, perhaps give some people some language to understand some of the crazy things we seem to be seeing out in the world at the moment and getting our, 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 our heads around all of it. Great. Well, we look forward to sharing the episode with you. If you are wanting more information about the uh, books or resources that we mention in this episode, you can join our subscriber list by heading to rebuilders.co. Let's get into it. Well, hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name's Liddy. I'm here with Mark and Daniel. Welcome back, guys. Good to be back. Good to be back in the saddle. Mm, great. Great to be back. So I'm just, I'm looking at my screen here and I can see your cup with, um, <laughs> which was once was black and now is slowly fading. You can see reappearing church, reappearing <laughs> on the cup. <laughs> Sorry, side point. Side point. But it's good to be back. It is. Welcome. Yes. Well, I think we I think we put it in the dishwasher when mm-hmm. you're not meant to put the cup in the dishwasher. Yeah. Aren't you? Did it come with well, rules? Well, for those who don't know what we're talking about, it was an incredible cup <laughs> that we had a bunch of them, which- <laughs> Say no more. Was, was black, but then when you poured hot drink into it, the reappearing church cover- logo came up yeah. there's yeah. a heat sort of sensor it, but it's on it i remember them saying don't put in the in the dishwasher which has obviously happened and now it's just neither it's just a sad <laughs> sad <laughs> situation it's a gray zone it's oh oh yeah Zing. um hey big news what we've all had covid now. we've all had oh, COVID. We now. We've all had COVID. yeah yeah <laughs> Post, not post COVID, but COVID, COVID experiencers. Yeah, tell us about your experience, Mark, because Daniel and I just had it in boring old Melbourne. Yeah, but, I did. Um, I did. I am part of the UK Jubilee weekend <laughs> uh, uh, wave. Um, so I was speaking in the UK and um, was meant to check out of my hotel and head to Oxford to speak uh, mm. up to Oxford and uh, double lines, double lines yeah, on double the lines. Uh, little test kit and you go into that like hang on but i'm in a hotel what do i do ah on my flight ah <laughs> so yeah it was it was logistical it was logistically fun i'll say that so yes. i had to end up staying in the uk until i recovered and was able to get back on a plane um but it was you guys were freezing back here in melbourne we were experiencing once in 40 was it how was it like the coldest yeah few weeks in decades yes yeah, and it really felt like that. <coughs> I mean, some I of our international listeners who are used to, mm. you know, snow for their yeah, winters yeah, is probably a little bit different. Yeah. But for us, it was, it was quite I went chillsome. and bought a jacket, like a puffer jacket because it was cold. Mm. Yeah, there were a bunch of us that gave you advice on yeah, that. Thank you. Yeah, you're it. welcome. <laughs> well, well I, was, yes. I was in delightfully warm London. Is that a tan? I think it is a tan. <laughs> I was very tanned sitting in London because also like I couldn't, I couldn't really go many places. But I could go. So I was across the road from <clears throat> Hyde Park, and um, I just would go across and sit in Hyde Park for like three hours in the sun. Yeah, 
And as an Aussie, you sort of it's sort of good to be in a northern hemisphere where you're like, I can be in the sun and not be afraid for my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I lapped <laughs> it up. To lather up in SPF 500 plus. That, that doesn't exist. So Daniel's making well, that up. So I, I came back and people were like, you've had COVID, but you look so healthy. You're <laughs> Uh, well, it's good to have you back. It's good to be back on the podcast recording. So, um, and given it's been a while, mm. I think the last episode that we released was May 11th, May 10th or 11th. Something like that. Um, yeah. So, it might be worth doing a bit of a bit of a sweep around the world mm. to see to see what's happening. Um, Can I'm I just gonna- say hello? It was, it was, it was, oh. I just say hello to. <laughs> Say hello. Hello. Just, I just want to say hello to my friends. Um, oh, no, it was just hi, great Mom. to, um, you know, before I got COVID, I was able to, you know, like just doing speaking and stuff and I was mm. at the Wildfires Festival um, and it was just great to meet lots of Rebuilders yes. listeners mm. and I think it reminded me the sort of strange experience we have down here in Australia and a lot of this podcast has been down, down in lockdown and us, you know, so you sort of you think it's just us three speaking in a room. <laughs> Uh, but Which it was just great is. to – well, it is, but yeah. it also goes out into the world. So it's just great to – thanks to everyone who came and said hi and it was just really encouraging to hear how it's, um, uh, yeah, connecting with people and um, we're very grateful for our audience. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, yeah, it was great to hear those stories relayed back to us here. So thank you for joining us. Mm. Uh, so now I'm going to do my sweep around the world from here Yeah. in Melbourne. Yeah. Let's start with Ukraine. What's happening there? Well, Ukraine war continues, um, and it's it's interesting in in the sense that I think some of the sort of predictions that things would end quickly yeah. you know, are not playing out, and in in many ways we're sort of heading towards you know an ongoing sort of grinding conflict, and mm-hmm. you know Russia is very much now sort of adjusting its its initial tactics, and you know relying quite devastatingly on on lots of long-range artillery and attacking cities. Mm. And you sort of got this reality that you've got cities like Lviv, you know, in in the west of the country and, and even Kiev to an extent, which, you know, there's, there's some semblance of normality. Mm. But then, you know, cities in the east, they're really, you know, experiencing terrible devastation. And, you know, I think that we're at a really interesting point um, in the sense that I think that, you know, people are starting to talk about Ukraine fatigue uh, you know, being in the UK, uh, UK, I saw a lot of, you know, it's interesting there's lots of Ukraine flags and saw that, you know, even in sort of smaller places. And, you know, there's obviously a tremendous um, concern around the world that with what's happening. But then also there's a stage where it's just really hard to keep it a front and centre yes. um, reality. And I think we're at sort of at this point too where also heading, at some point we'll head out of the um, European summer into the European winter. And I think the sort of cost of... The economic cost that this is having to the rest of the world, and particularly the energy cost, which we might get onto a bit later, yeah, it's going to start to bite, mm-hmm. you know. And, and what's going to be the ongoing stomach for, particularly European publics, um, you know, seeing the economic um, upheaval around the world, you know, the ruble's gone up, you know, as Russia's still exporting uh, oil, and um, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, one of the other big flow-on effects as well is you're seeing on Russian TV. You know, sort of Russian talking heads. You know, talking about. You know, I think one of the TV. Um, I think it's the head of. I've forgotten her name, but she was either is or was the head of RT Russia Today, and she talked about. You know, famine is our weapon now, mm. and you know some of the the food and grain issues with you know Russia uh, and Ukraine. You know, sent footage of uh, Russian soldiers setting f- a fire to Ukrainian wheat fields, um, and you know 
this war is going to have continuing pain for the rest of the world. Yeah. So it's not just an issue that we're all passionate about. So I think there's an element where sort of, you know, it's not looking as clear cut as before. You know, the ongoing cost is going to be quite tremendous um, and it doesn't look like we can see any sort of resolution to mm. this anytime soon. So the tragedy continues to unfold um, for the people of Ukraine. Um, and just just on a positive note, just seeing in the UK and hearing stories too, just the church. Again, I think we don't tell these stories enough. Yeah. But, you know, stories really stepping up, and uh, sorry, churches really stepping up and providing for, you know, Ukrainian refugees and yeah. talking to people around that. It's really inspiring. Um, but you know, the cost is going to continue to be there for both the Ukrainian people, but also the rest of the world. It's going to continue to be a key dynamic affecting the future of the world. Mm. Certainly, one um, that. Yeah, I'm keen for us to keep talking about. Um, let's move on to politics. Yeah. What's happening in the world of politics? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we haven't had a uh, <coughs> conversation since our federal election here in Australia. Oh, yes. Uh, which was quite interesting in the sense that um, we saw something similar that we've just also seen in the latest French parliamentary elections mm -hmm. where you've seen a real frustration with the central central you know sort of more center party center right center left yeah in australia we've got our center left party the labor party who ended up winning the election but with a historic low vote mm. uh, and you saw the sort of center right party um, lose power after having some time in power but it was the rise of sort of new parties and smaller parties yeah. tremendous frustration which we haven't seen in australian politics that much interestingly um uh it the big issue you know you sort of saw in the australian election was the environment becoming a mainstream issue um, and that sort of went beyond a polarisation. You know, often that's seen as a polarised issue but it became almost a central issue and even mm. areas which traditionally have been conservative ended up voting in green candidates. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're seeing a very different political landscape. But I think one of the big takeaways from the Australian election, which I think is going to go forward into other elections, is there was no one story. Like mm. that normally, if again, if you think about some of the things that we've been talking about in this podcast is the move from a era where there's a defined set of values where particularly the era we've come from has been one of mass culture. Yes. And the electorate would, particularly in Australia, decide to vote this party in or decide to vote that party out. Um, we saw different things happening all across the country. Yeah. You know, in Tasmania, you know, you saw – the Conservative Party get in other parts. There was huge moves against the Conservative Party. Certain types of independent parties in certain places, just stuff we'd never seen before, uh, which was really fascinating. And uh, you know, again, France today. You know, just look at the news. You're seeing, you know, Emmanuel Macron having to negotiate with, you know, Marine Le Pen and you know, the sort of far right. And I saw mm. pictures of him talking to the Communist Party leader. And the role that I think, you know, more unconventional parties, independent parties, more extreme parties are going to play. It's going to be really interesting going forward. But again, what it shows you is we're going from big blocks to fragmentation. Yes. And little local things. Um, uh, there was one story I heard, uh, I think it was a green candidate, I think in one of the, the electorates in in New South Wales and, and people were like, oh, wow, this, sheet, this seat shifted. Um, and, you know, what does this mean? And then someone just rang up and was like, actually, that one candidate was just saying that there was a new flight path over the electorate and they were campaigning on that really local issue yeah, and that's yeah. why they won. So you saw in our election this weird thing between super local issues but then big geopolitical issues yes. like cost of living and, you know, so on, environment. So, yeah, I think that's sort of, you know, indicative of the way that the world is changing. It's mm. gone from polarized or big block thinking to much more fragmented mosaic dynamics. Yeah. 
finally, in the roundup, China's also been in the news. Yes. What's happening there? Well, I think China, you know, there's been lots of focus on um, uh, Ukraine, rightly mm-hmm. so. Um, but, you know, any conversation around Ukraine and Russia invading Ukraine inevitably brings us back to, you know, China. Yep. Um, I saw an interview with the current head of the uh, head of the CIA, who's interviewed by Edward Luce of the Financial Times. I think he's the editor of the Financial Times currently. Uh, William Burns, current head of the CIA. And it was just interesting. He said, everything that's happening in Ukraine, still this US assessment is that the chief competitor of the US and the West is China. Mm. And, you know, it's been big news here in Australia. <coughs> You know of these deals that China is doing with these different, very small, um, some micro states in the Pacific, like mm. the Solomon Islands, um, and you're seeing this great geopolitical game going on where China, as a rising competitor, um, you know, to to the US and and to the West, is you know changing the geopolitical order. But a couple of just interesting things on that. So China is continuing. Um, uh, you know, uh, approach of COVID zero yes. is is really interesting and, and almost a shutting off from the world. There's been mm. interesting a number of articles about Chinese people who have been living overseas, returning home and having their passports cut as they oh, get wow. to the war so they can't leave. Also yeah. other stories of lots of Chinese people who are applying for passports who can't get them. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely seems to be some sort of, um, you know, reports at least of uh, Chinese government sort of keeping its people, you know, within the country, which is fascinating. So almost so much of the story, particularly since 1989, is the story of China's integration with the world economically. Yeah. That provided so many cheap things. It provided lots of money for the West. And a lot of the growth of Western countries, you know, particularly of Australia, has been through an influx of Chinese money, buying yeah. of resources and so on. But I saw this morning in the paper, they said 70% of Chinese investment in Australia has, has it's gone down by 70%. Mm. Another interesting fact is that, you know, it was interesting going to, to the UK and um, being in London after having not been there for a while. And I noticed, you know, there's Spanish tourists, there's some American tourists, but there's very few Chinese tourists. I don't think I saw hardly any. Mm. And in 2012, Chinese tourists overtook American tourists as the world's most traveled people. Yeah. But what's different between Chinese tourists and American tourists is that Chinese tourists spent twice as much as Americans. Wow. So, so much of the global tourism um, sort of industry has been recently, you know, really adjusted in the last sort of, you know, 10 years to this large amounts of Chinese, you know, you had people rising from poverty into middle class and then uh, spending that money around the world. But what happens if that stops mm. and and China's encouraging its people not to travel? You're getting lots of Chinese students coming home. So the big story there is the story of globalization has been really a lot about the story of China entering the global economy. But what happens if that slows significantly down? That's yeah. going to have a significant structural effect on the world. And then the ongoing story too is that the window for if China, you know, the the sort of claim of the Chinese government on Taiwan, mm. um, the taking of Taiwan, which is a hugely strategic place, not just for obviously China, but you know, in terms of chip production, supply chain issues yeah. around Taiwan, so many of the world's sort of um, computer chip and semiconductors are made there. That if Taiwan was to be taken by China, that would have an even more dramatic effect on the global economy than what's happening with Ukraine. Yes. Um, and the window for that to happen, you know, there's a short window uh, that, you know, there's many analysts saying that could happen in the next little period. Okay. Um, you know, so it could be 10 years, could be five years, could be three years. We just don't know. So that's just something else to watch that will be another significantly changing action in the way the world is going. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for that update. <laughs> Each of those, uh, I guess, examples of things that are going on in the world are emblematic of what you talk about when we um, when we've been exploring this notion of the grey zone, uh, living through the grey zone. It's disorienting. One other sort of thing that we've that you've identified as as living in a grey zone is. Uh, there being sort of two contradictory or multiple contradictory things happening at the same time. Mm. Um, and you're wanting to talk about that today. Yeah. So can you explore what yeah. that means? So one of the things I, I've been encouraging people to think about is software and hardware. Yeah. That we tend to be focused when it comes to cultural change on software, which I would call ideas. Yep. Talk about ideas, worldview, how they change the world. And that's that's very true. But also I'm encouraging people to look at soft, uh, hardware changes, mm -hmm. you know, like so we've looked at supply chains, yeah. we've looked at different things like that, which are more um, how the environment of our world changes. So there's an interplay between the ideas and the environment and the, uh, the software and the hardware in which yeah. we're living in. But in grey zone, often contradictory things can happen at the same time. And one of the things I've just been thinking about, really it's a, it's a couple of ideas that have bounced off each other in my head as I've been reading over the last sort of month is – the idea that we're experiencing an acceleration in culture yep. at the same time as a deceleration, uh, a speed up and a slow down. Yeah, okay. Um, <coughs> the idea of an acceleration in, in culture is, you know, often people seem like to say, you know, they look at the news and they see certain trends and like, this is crazy. Like, mm. how, how, where are these ideas coming from? And one of the ideas that's been spoken about with cultural change is the idea of the Overton window. The Overton window is a model of how culture changes. And so, for example, there might be a taboo, say, swearing on TV or mm -hmm. using mild swear words on TV. As soon as that taboo is broken and, say, mild swear words are able to be used on TV, it's inevitable that the next taboo will then be more stringent swear words on TV. Yes, yeah. And, uh you know, there'd be a never point where someone will then question that taboo. Once that's accepted, it's like you can imagine it's like a it's like an envelope going further and further wider. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then once there's stringent swearing, will there be nudity and you know partial nudity, you know, full nudity? So you know, this has been an argument that lots of people have used about how culture changes the moving Overton window. But what's interesting is that <coughs> that tends to move slowly as. Um, you know, there's resistance. There's people who resist change. You know, we've talked about conservatives or traditionalists resisting change, and mm. progressives or liberals wanting to move the move the the window in a certain direction. So it sort of plays out in this dialectic discussion and argument about how fast this should happen. Yes. So cultural change, you know, happens slowly. But I read a fascinating theory which made a lot of sense to me um, by in a book called. Um, uh, uh, by Mark Leonard, um, I'll just find the title here, which I just read called The Age of Unpeace. <coughs> Apologies for my lingering cough here. Um, first of all, fascinating book because I, I read it after, I've re I only read it a couple of weeks ago and read it um, obviously after writing my book, but so many of the themes that I wrote about in uh, uh, the non-anxious presence are mm. in this book. He's mm. sort of termed for a grey zone. He calls it's not war, it's not peace, it's unpeace. Yeah. So the book's called The Age of Unpeace. <coughs> it was the Financial Times Economics Book of the Year. So there you go. Mm. And the subtitle is How Connectivity Causes Conflict. 
um, really interesting book about mm. globalization, geopolitical order, and, and disorder in the world. He has one one theory in there which I thought was fascinating that the Overton window, the idea of how culture changes, we've thought about in a, almost a mass culture sense. Yes. So the example I gave, swearing on say network TV, where all of a sudden you know it, I think about when I was a kid. Um, if something happened on a network TV show that everyone watched, the next day at school, everyone knew yeah, about it. Yeah, 100%. You know, it was like mainstream news and the papers would report on it. You know, it was this this ongoing conversation because that's mass culture. It reaches the mass of people mm. and the mass of people could be reached by a few TV channels, yep. a few newspapers, a few key magazines, a few key radio stations <coughs> or a few key, you know, blockbuster movies. But Mark Leonard talks about what does that look like in a fragmented network digital reality? Mm. And in, in a fragmented network digital reality, you have this thing where everyone goes on a Facebook or a Twitter platform and everyone tries to talk, but it instantly goes into a kind of battle, you know, as yeah. everyone's got a voice. It's not just three channels dictating everything. It's thousands, if not millions of channels, individual channels dictating things. And inevitably what we've seen is that we've gone from this big block of people on Facebook or Twitter to siloing. Yes. So they either find a subculture or niche on that platform or they go to a whole new platform altogether, yeah, as we've yeah, seen yeah. as well. And then you ask the questions, well, what happens then when in a silo you get a bunch of people and they they all think alike? Yep. And then how does the Overton window work in that dynamic? So, for example, in a mass culture, you've got, say, <coughs> opposing voices, um, you know, making that process go slower. There's more of a dialectic, more of a discussion, mm. more of a struggle. Compromises have to be made. There's debate. But if you're in a silo where everyone thinks the same, yep. there tends to be a huge acceleration of the Overton window. Yeah. And actually, people want to be seen as purists and they want to be seen as, you know, being the, the truest believers. You know, if it's a within bunch of- Within the silo itself. Within the silo yeah. itself. So if it's a bunch of conservatives, who's the most conservative? If it's yeah. a bunch of you know progressives, who's the most progressives? It's a bunch of nationalists, who's the most nationalist? If it's a bunch of you know globalization people, who's the most supportive of globalization? So you still have cultural change, but the sort of drag on it, the slow, the brakes, it's all accelerator, no brakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what happens is you have these, what he talks about is <coughs> you have this thing where in the culture, these ideas are brewing almost at this subcultural level in these online spaces, going incredibly fast. And then they sort of pop up into the broader cultural sphere and everyone's like, my goodness, they've how have they come up with that? Yes. Um, so things then move really quickly. I mean, just one example, like, um, you know, there's a, a sort of writer in the sort of American right world in some of the sort of Trump, in, the intellectuals behind Trump, a guy who was originally called, uh, Mencius, uh, he's called Mencius Molberg or whatever, who was this online writer. It was actually a guy called Curtis Yarvin, you know, and he, and he, he wrote this article um, I read the other day in Unheard magazine. And so this is sort of the, you know, one of the intellectual architects of Trumpism is what some people have called him. Mm. In this article, he argued effectively that, you know, the whole modern world's gone wrong. You can trace it back to the 17th century when the Stuart kings in England should have maintained the throne. And his argument at the end is, he gets this point, like, effectively, 
we need to get rid of democracy. It's not working. We don't use it in companies. We don't use it in area. Why should we use it? And effectively, Prince Charles needs to become, when he's king, needs to become King Charles III and effectively take over everything in a, a complete monarchy and America should fold back into the British Empire. And the sort of end, end of this essay is sort of, you know, the British Navy coming up the, you know, Potomac River in Washington, D.C., sort of retaking America. What on earth? Do I mean, you know it would make like, for a great Hamilton <coughs> take two. Yeah, yeah, it'd be a great movie. Stage show. Yeah, stage show. Um, but it's just an example of how in an online space, ideas can go so radical so quickly, yeah. then they pop up into the space. And, you know, I've not been following these, <clears throat> these thoughts fully. They just seem extreme. So I think yeah. that what's happening is the extremes of society have siloed in terms of thought yes. and are becoming more and more radically yeah. radical. Um, and so I think in one sense you've got this acceleration of ideas mm. happening at an incredible rate and the Overton window is is moving both on the left and the right and all in many spaces at an absolutely blistering pace, which is leaving many of us, our, our heads absolutely spinning. And I, when that happens, when there's such disparate um, ideas and ideologies, when they come up against each other, what happens? You know, when yeah. they sprout out of the ground, you're yeah. like, what is this bizarre? Well, I, th I think we're almost getting the point with polarization where it's less about, say, left and right or <coughs> the two sides at each other versus the sides, the battles that are happening in the two sides. Um, you know, so you're seeing, you know, in the news, these arguments about places like San Francisco or Portland, where you, the argument now is less between the right and the left as between the hard left and the sort of middle left, mm. you know, and particularly around issues of law and order or whatever. You're seeing in a lot of American progressive institutions, um, you know, the ACLU or Planned Parenthood or whatever, it's actually battles within, you know. Right. Um, so it's less, and the same you're seeing, say, you know, again, just look at American politics, but, you know, it's not, it's less. Republicans versus Democrats. It's who's the you know who's a Republican in name only. Who's you know the most you know. So you're seeing these battles even within the Green movement. You're seeing battles um, yeah. over energy and stuff like this. So I think we've moved from a phase of polarization to more fragmented world with lots of internal battles. Yes. And okay. Then so lots of they, silos within yes, the one. Yes. What used to be one big block is yes. now just multiple silos. <coughs> gotcha. Now, what's interesting, I think what we're seeing is there's a realisation that this is disillusioning and so distant from the mainstream. Mm. So there still is a mainstream out there. There still is a bunch of people who are not as invested in these ideas, not as invested in politics. Um, they're living their lives. Interesting, CNN is making this big pitch now because its its ratings are, are dropping to become more more – you know, more centrist. Yes, know. okay. Um, you know, you know, Hillary Clinton yesterday was making comments about sort of trans stuff saying, you know, look, this is an issue which affects a small amount of people. It's not going to win its elections. Let's go back to bread and butter issues. In the Australian election, you saw our, our Labor Party, our centre-left party, was almost running away from, you know, quote-unquote woke issues, you know, regardless of what they actually believe them because they realise that the public is just tiring of a lot of this stuff. Yes. So there is this sense where – 
we're in this transition moment where cost of living and a lot more bread and butter issues are coming, you know, are really where the mainstream's at. But then you've got these very internalized battles as well. Um, and, you know, in some ways it's the dynamic we used to see with Twitter. People say there's a Twitter battle, doesn't affect real life. Mm. Those Twitter battles have now taken over a lot of these institutions, but still there's a point of just cultural exhaustion, I think, in the public, yes. you know, out there, even though people are looking, you know, off sometimes at more, you know, non-establishment parties, there's two things happening. There's a part of the culture who are obsessed with these battles. There's another part of the culture exhausted by these battles, another grey zone dynamic. How do, um, how do you see then, and maybe you don't have an answer to this, how do you see, uh, you know, institutions like CNN taking a centrist approach when they're are these, you know, really extreme views, but then there are, as you said, these bread and butter views and or like position. Is centrism in the middle of that or is it just closer to the non-extremes of all of it? I, th I think a, a good way of thinking about it is um, it's almost we've seen the right and left spectrum Mm. Um, as this thing and sort of sometimes it's positioned, well, the middle is the central part that's the best part to be because it's not extreme. Yeah. And maybe it's actually seeing, you know, a different way of looking at it where you might go, those people over there are hard left, so they're, they're people who believe in hard left mm -hmm. and these people over here are more hard right, that's what they believe in, um, or they're more, you know, on the environmentalist side or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and centrism is perhaps less centrism as it is – classical liberalism or classic democratic liberalism. I just read, you know, I've often talked about Francis Fukuyama. I just mm. read his new book, um, Liberalism and Its Discontents. And really what that book is, his argument is liberal democracy is something which we've lived under and we've taken for granted. And it's, it's actually something which isn't just neutral. It has certain values and we need to re-grab onto those values and recognize the threat that comes from the extremes of the left and right. Yes. So that's a slightly different argument. It's less yeah. like we're just central and we don't really believe anything and we're yeah, neutral yeah, yeah. as in, no, we actually believe something and this is what we're for. By the way, I'm not making an argument there. For <laughs> yeah, liberal democracy, right. I'm just saying Fukuyama's argument. So I think that's actually a more honest argument. Yeah. I think that often what we like to do in the West is we, you know, part of how power has been um, argued philosophically in the West is um, – <coughs> Our position's the most rational because because we have this value of ration rationalism and mm. reason mm. Um, that well our position is the most rational and reasonable and anyone yeah. who doesn't believe it must be an unenlightened you know ignoramus mm -hmm. so you know I wonder whether it's more what we're seeing is a battle between different political positions and its centrism is really liberal democracy you know it's it's what that's really what they're trying to argue classical yeah, okay. liberal democracy versus hyper liberalism i think john gray's called it um so i think what's what cnn is realizing yeah is probably a lot being driven by money yes. really yes. you know if you read the article they talk about ratings and sponsors dropping mm. off i mean in some ways you've seen the same with fox news fox news um, as as sort of the Republic thing drifted, you know, into, into different territory. You've got you know, Newsmax and I think it's America One Network, and people listen to them because Fox became too central, you know, like mm. not not as as extreme as they wanted it to be. Um, so more, I would say, probably what CNN's trying to do is not be neutral. They're actually advocating a liberal democratic position. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we kind of almost need to steer away from. Uh 
binary thinking, which yes, we're yes. prone to in the West. Yes. Uh, so you mentioned earlier uh, <coughs> that we are exploring two contradictory uh, things and we've mm. just talked about acceleration, but you also talked about the fact that we're slowing down. So yes. the ideas are accelerating at yes. a rapid rate, but what's slowing down? So uh, another book I read um, in the last little bit, I began to read, which I think I, I'm still trying to work out what I think about this, but I think it's a very provocative thesis that does accord with, I think, some of what we're seeing. Um, it's actually a book written by Danny Dowling. Dowling, 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 Dowling. Uh, we can put it in the subscriber chats, mm -hmm. which if you're not a subscriber and you'd like to subscribe to, to our mailing list, yes. please do so. We'll give details at the end of the episode. Rebuilders.co. Rebuilders.co. Um, his argument is... History, you know, we've talked to you before about the sort of 1989 to 2016 sort of period of, mm. you know, culture just growing and everything seemed to be progressing and technology improving and the world becoming the smoother place. He would call that the great acceleration. Okay. So he would say, you know, the economy was growing, technology was growing, our cities seemed to be growing, things seemed to be becoming more productive, more smoother, more efficient. His argument is we're now moving into a slowdown. Okay. Uh, he has a number of indices of this. You know, he would argue that actually breakthrough, a lot of our technology actual improvements are more just improvements. They're not radical breakthroughs. Yeah. You know? And you've heard like people, Elon Musk and, stuff, yeah. and Peter Thiel say, you know, we thought we'd have flying cars and now we just got, you know, Twitter or something. Um, <laughs> <coughs> well, a phone is just, you know, an iPhone is an improved computer. A yeah. smaller computer, you know, where if you think about, say, the 1970s or 1960s, you know, tell, you know when, you know, 747s and, and, and you know, like you had, other, you had breakthrough technologies. We haven't seen that in the same way. Mm. Um, energy, which we can, you know, talk about in a second a bit more, but um, the world between 1950 and 1973 went through this incredible, particularly in the developed world, this incredible growth in living standards, productivity. So mm. much of that was actually fueled and globalization, you know, first, you know, some of the stages of globalization. So much of that was actually fueled by 1948, the discoveries of the Saudi oil fields, okay. which began to come online. And all of a sudden you just had this cheap oil, <coughs> which, you know, powered this growth. The 70s we talk about as a period of economic stagnation. Well, what happened? 1973, I think it was, OPEC, the oil cartel, actually raised the price of oil to sort of punish the West over its Israel policies. And we went into this period of stagnation, very mm. similar to what we're having now. And so a lot of our growth is not just taken for granted. I think we've had this ideology that, oh, the world's just going to keep growing and improving and technology is going to yep. keep going. But that's dependent on a number of things. Mm. That's dependent on energy sources. Yep. That, you know. So we're at this point where he would argue with energy, we need to move to you know, a carbon sort of free you know, economy and, and you know, renewables. But actually, we haven't found out fully the ways to do that yet. You know, mm. Even if you're pro doing that, it's going to cost pain to get there. And there's going to be a slowdown of the kind of life that we expect. Yes. Um, he talks about the fact that almost all developed countries are absolutely cratering in their fertility rates, you know, which inevitably will move us into social, um, you know, uh, uh, significant social issues as you don't mm. have people to to run things and, and, and have militaries and economies and so on. Um, 
financially, we're hitting you know a lot of problems in massive debt. So I can't, he's got about ten um, different indices where he argues we're actually moving into a significant era of slowdown. His thing is like it's not we're going to fall into mass poverty or anything like that. Yeah. It's just that life is not going to have the standards of living that we may have had you know, 2010 to 2019, yeah. like 2019 or 2017 uh, was possibly a peak. And even globalization, you know, there's a lot of indices which says globalization got to a peak and now it's definitely declining. Yes. So I think some of the stuff we've been talking about in this structural change, <coughs> I think his concept of a slowdown is capturing that, you know, standards of living, Things are costing more, fuel's yeah. costing more. We're seeing that an interconnected global system, or we've got as a war in Ukraine or a COVID um, pandemic, and all of a sudden things start to go wrong. So it's like the machine was brand new and running. It's yes. like an electric car, a, a new car. You get it and everything's whiz bang, and it's like a computer, but then stuff starts to go wrong after 10 years or yeah. a new fridge or something. Yeah. Um, so, so structurally, we're slowing down. And just just on this too, I think one of the big things that I'm watching at the moment um, is, the, is the economy. I know Daniel mm. and I were having a chat about this, I think, yesterday. You know, there's significant – lots of people much smarter on the economy than me, you know, are saying that we are, you know, inevitably heading into a recession. Yeah. You've got a whole generation who have never really experienced a recession, particularly here in Australia, which didn't even have the effects of the 2008 GFC. Yes. Um, and that's going to radically change things, radically change things. So, you know, there's a very good argument um, by Daniel Dowling, the Harold Mackinder head of geography at Oxford University, that we are going to head into a slowdown. So I guess my question, which I'm sort of wrestling with in my mind, what does it look like when you've got this – cultural acceleration of ideas of mm. radical ideas and these radical visions of how do we pull off a you know utopian progressive society of inclusion at an exact time when all of a sudden we're moving back to this much more bread and butter reality and what's the interplay between those two things it's going to be really fascinating for the world to see yeah well watch this gray zone watch this gr very gray <laughs> space yeah uh well that's really been a a big meta look at at what's happening um, culturally in the world. In our next episode, we're going to be looking more at the trends of the church in the midst of a grey zone. How can we lead to create deeper disciples um, and point people to Jesus? Yeah. So join us next time. Yeah. It's been a pleasure to be back. Great to be back. 